I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and this is The Atlantic Interview. I'll be talking with Masha Gessen, the great journalist and writer and activist who's been doing some of the most incisive work on Russia and the future of democracy. Masha's newest book is called The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. In it, she talks about how Vladimir Putin, against the odds, has kept control over his vast empire. It's holding together as a result of sort of a combination of both fear and greed. So Putin either instills fear in in the regions or buys them off. Hours after I interviewed Masha for this podcast, it was announced that she had won the National Book Award for nonfiction, which means that two great things happened to her that day. Uh, In our conversation, we talk about the future of democracy, about Putin, and, of course, about Donald Trump. Do you think Donald Trump was brought to power by Russians or by Americans? I think Donald Trump was brought to power by Americans. Do you they think, voted for him. Do you think we're overemphasizing Russia's nefarious either intent or actual actions in this moment? These are leading questions, Jeff. But uh, yes, absolutely. I do think that we're overemphasizing it. And I think we're overemphasizing it uh, at the expense of actually the, being able to think about the election in a meaningful way. Um, I mean, there's something very important happened when Americans voted for Trump. A lot of people in this country feel the system of representative democracy that hasn't worked for them for a long, long time. And those are the issues that this election gives us an unfortunate opportunity to engage with. And engaging instead with the Russia conspiracy takes up that bandwidth. Is the Russia conspiracy real? I don't know. I mean, we don't know, right? But it's not a terribly important question or answer. Whoa. I mean, ultimately. Wait, why? Well, because ultimately it doesn't matter what Russia wanted, right? Mm-hmm. What matters is whether there was an actual arrangement with the Trump campaign. That's the part we actually don't know yet. Okay, let me just push back a little bit okay. and say that if a, if a foreign power is actively trying to meddle in an American election, it still seems to matter, no? That's sort of an attack on our democracy. Well, okay, let me give you an example. A week, uh, or the weekend before the election, I was in Philadelphia with my daughter canvassing for Hillary. And there was this church where they handed out the clipboards. And so we're standing in line for clipboards, and a busload of Dutch tourists gets off and gets in line. And my first reaction was like, oh, um, but these people are Dutch. They shouldn't be like That's quite uh, odd, canvassing. Yeah. And then I thought, okay, these people live you know, in Amsterdam, wherever it is they live. And if Donald Trump gets elected... Uh, they will live on this planet that will risk being annihilated by a nuclear holocaust uh, and uh, you know, damaged by irreparable climate change. And do they have less right to ask the people of Philadelphia to vote in a particular way uh, than I, as a New Yorker, have to ask the people of Philadelphia to, to vote in a particular way? So you're right. not a huge fan of sovereignty? Uh, as a concept, nah, no, not a huge yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm more of a sovereignty kind of guy. I'd have loved to gone on that canvassing mission of these Dutch. That, I, I'm not sure how effective that would be. The, the sort of the activist in me and the journalist in me at that point were like in this life or death struggle because I really wanted to trail along and see how the people in this very, very poor, very, very black neighborhood of Philadelphia were going to react to these, you know, six, uh, eight foot tall Dutch people. They do grow know. them very tall there. <laughs> I think that is a that is a true fact. Right. Uh, as as someone who does believe in American sovereignty. I'm offended by the idea uh, in principle that any country would try to interfere in our domestic affairs, even though 
positing that what happens in an American election doesn't stay in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but even more so when you have a, a government, Putin government, that is um, adversarial. Right. So Russian attempts to sow discord don't see, you know, they're, they're to, to me, first of all, they're predictable. Second of all, they're ridiculous. It's not the first time in history. Right. They've been doing pretty much the same thing for at least 50 years. American political reality has moved a lot closer to the Russian perception of, of it, the, what used to be a really distorted perception, what used to be a total caricature. Than, than it used to be, which I think is a little disturbing. We're becoming more like Russia? No, we're becoming more like uh, like what Russia imagines us to be. Which is to say? Easily manipulated, absurdly polarized, uh, torn apart by um, – t- t- torn apart by issues that really divide uh, cultures in, the, in, in this country into two separate realities. And, and that you can play these rea- realities off against each other and it will actually work. This goes to a larger point that you make, uh, which is that Putin is not the Bond villain mastermind of global chaos that we have in our minds. That's fair? That is fair. And it's, it's an incredibly circular thing because he, of course, wants to be the Bond villain. Right? I mean, that's that's what he dreamed of doing his entire life, right? The presidency. If he were a Bond him, villain, which villain would he want to be? I don't, I don't think that I'm well versed enough in Bond. Yeah, I'm just going to vote Doctor No, and we'll move on. Okay, okay, that's, I'll, um, uncontested. Oh, thank you very much. So he he wants to be perceived right. as a Bond level villain, but is not. He always wanted to be the secret agent who rules the world from the shadows. He never wanted to be a public politician. And like this, this shadow play, this behind-the-scenes stuff, that's the real fun part. And I don't think he's very good at it. Um, what we have seen now of what Russia did in the campaign is mostly ridiculous. And yet the, uh, the way that Americans have reacted to it or a large number of Americans have reacted to it has actually elevated Putin exactly to the level of the Bond villain that he aspires to be. Are you surprised that the – American left or American liberals now are on the Russia paranoia bandwagon? I am really surprised and I'm really disappointed. Uh, And, you know, it's remarkable. I don't know. I love uh, Michael Barbaro's The Daily podcast. And so I was writing uh, this morning. I was writing here and listening to The Daily. And he was talking to um, a New York Times reporter about the uranium deal. What do we know to be fact in the case of Uranium One and the Clintons? Yes, it's true that Uranium One was sold to a Russian nuclear agency. And it was a beautiful conversation. Yes, it's also true that folks associated with Uranium One donated money to the Clinton Foundation. And it's also true that Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State at the time. But the story is far more nuanced than that. There were many government officials who were part of approving the deal, Mm -hmm. and there's no evidence of a quid pro quo in which the donation was made to the foundation in exchange for the approval. And it's been investigated, and and we know that even though it may look suspicious, it's actually not suspicious, and we shouldn't rush to, to connect those dots. And in my mind, I immediately compared that to a podcast that I listened to, the same, you know, The Daily, maybe a week ago, maybe two weeks ago where he, uh, Michael had the same conversation with a different New York Times reporter about the Russia conspiracy. Still coming into focus for us. So at this point, it's really clear that the Russians really wanted to make contact with the Trump campaign 
and really make Trump president. The big question is, what did the Trump team do with that outreach? To me, this is the most explicit evidence that we have to date that the Russian government was reaching into the Trump campaign Hmm. and saying, hey, we got email. And the tone of it was completely different because they ran through the facts. But to make connections between the facts, the reporter kept saying, we know about things that we don't know. Hmm. I have a hard time taking it seriously because it's more Clouseau than it is Dr. No, to, to keep going with the Bond uh, reference. And may, I, obviously, I need to take it more seriously. The idea that they would want to do something if they actually did want to do something together with Russia is profoundly disturbing. But they're so bad at this. <laughs> and and so that's why I guess I don't take it as seriously as, as – and maybe I have this vision of really nefarious KGBers trying to manipulate Americans into a race war. But I, I want to just come back to this point about which one is worse. The right. idea that the Trump – people would want to collude or that Russia was engaged in an effort to uh, create dissension and anxiety in America? So, I mean, one can actually argue that no matter what happens with the investigation, we're not going to learn anything new about this, right? Because we have known for years that Russia tries to create dissension in America. Um, But I don't know that it tells us anything significant about the political moment we're in. What tell, uh, I think the significant stuff is actually, you know, in the voting right. data and, and, and right. in the states that voted for Trump. It, which, which makes your focus what is happening in America exactly. rather than what is Russia doing to America. Right. What is happening in America? How are mm-hmm. we changing? How are we becoming more like uh, a dysfunctional non-democracy? There are a couple of ways to use the word democracy. And the way that I think is productive is to think about democracy as not a state that can actually be achieved. But as an ideal, right? It's an an aspirational ideal, and the ideal is always changing. But at this point, this country is not moving toward democracy. It's marching away from democracy. You write in The Future is History about Homo Sovieticus. Mm -hmm. Describe very briefly who Homo Sovieticus is and how he relates to the reversal of history or the reversal of progress in in Russia. So Homo Sovieticus is basically the human being who evolved to survive um, under conditions of state terror. Any person faced with an ongoing traumatic situation develops certain survival skills, certain coping mechanisms. The personality fragments and sort of different parts of the person get activated depending on these um, rapidly shifting circumstances. The hypothesis that that I write about in the book uh, on the part of the sociologist who invented the term homo sovieticus, um, Yuri Levada, was that it was generationally bound. And once enough time had passed since state terror ended uh, since the 1950s, homo sovieticus was just going to die out and then the Soviet Union was going to collapse. And the Soviet Union seemed to collapse right on schedule. But then it turned out that homo sovieticus didn't, didn't go anywhere because there's such a thing as intergenerational trauma. And those, those coping skills, those ways of, uh, of behaving and thinking are actually passed on from generation to generation um, in society as a whole. So society as a whole has cultural institutions that sort of kick into gear as soon as they start getting signals that they interpret as signals from a totalitarian past. And I think that's what's happened under Putin. Putin set out to build a mafia state. He didn't set out to build a totalitarian regime. But he was building his mafia state on the ruins of a totalitarian regime. 
And so so he, the triggered, things he, he triggered a, a bunch of thoughts then. And so what I think we end up with is sort of a mafia state and a totalitarian society. We're going to pause here for a moment to thank our sponsor. More of Masha Gessen after the break. Who is homo Trumpius, and how does that relate in, in, in behavioral ways to uh, to what you're talking about a little bit in this book? So, so two things. One is, um, you know, where I think the parallel. By the way, I'm going to trademark homo Trumpius. But I can quote it. Oh, absolutely, I, freely. Thank you. So, um, I think that um, where where there's a direct parallel is in this appeal to the imaginary past. Right. This is that's what uh, Putin does, and that's what Trump does, and they do it in some really remarkably similar ways. Right. So the sort of this vague idea of traditional values, this this idea of making America great again, making Russia great again. I mean, literally, right. Um, and it's not clear which great it is, but it communicates in a very sort of comprehensible way. This you can go back to a time when you felt more comfortable. What you, when you could understand the world that you lived in, mm-hmm. when you were not constantly con- uh, confronted with things that make you uneasy, those things can be homosexuals, immigrants, transgender people, and I'm going to take you back to a comfortable past. Unchain you from political correctness in That's Trump's... That's one, one way of putting right. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, we're, we're, I, I don't think that I agree with you on the, uh, with the, on, the, on the point that this make America great again thing is expansive. I don't think it is. It can become expansionist, right? But at this point, it's pretty sort of traditional isolationist. When I hear him talking about uh, invading Iraq and taking the oil or, uh, or, or language that is intemperate and that could trigger war with North Korea, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he's an isolationist. I think he believes that the world is America's for the taking. This is why he's so offended, but also impressed by people who argue for strong trade deals on behalf of their own countries. Right, um, right. No, I, I don't know. I, yeah, You're probably I mean, right about that. He doesn't, he's not trying to, he's not trying to uh, absorb Mexico and Canada right. into a greater American empire. I think that could shift. I think if if he felt like that would get traction, well, there's no there there, so anything could happen. Right, right. Right. But but I mean, when he talked about um, invading Iraq and taking the oil, I really like uh, imagined you know Americans sort of running in, grabbing gas cans full of oil, (laughs) and like running back to America carrying them under their arms. You didn't know that that oil was easily (laughs) the oil wells themselves were easily transportable. Right. right. Go back to the go back to the Trump voter. So so the Trump voter, and here. I want to really think differently than uh, the very, I think, consistent liberal media, excuse the expression, line of, well, if they just knew better, they would vote differently, right? They're underinformed, they're undereducated. And that, I think con- that, that condescension is not for you. Um, but no, I think it really misunderstands something, which is that um, just because people are not acting rationally in accordance with what you think is rational doesn't mean that they're not acting rationally. And I think there's perfectly rational voter behavior in voting for Trump, right? On the part of people for whom participation in American representative democracy has been in no one proposition for a generation or more, right? And so, in for economic situ- reasons, for or economic cultural? reasons, yeah, okay. I think economic and social reasons, but but largely economic reasons. I mean, life is getting worse. You get uh, you're less comfortable in your own house, in your own town, in your own skin with every passing year. Your outlook for the future is worse with every passing year. And you conscientiously voted for people you know, through this entire time. So uh, it is actually an established fact that the system did not work for you. 
this representative democracy thing. And so you go and lob a grenade at it when the grenade becomes available, right? And that is rational. Let's talk about Russia and, and your book. You, you draw a picture of a Russia in seemingly permanent decline, a decline caused by trauma and corruption and psycho- unexamined psychological duress. Uh, is there any off-ramp? I guess. By the way, it's a great book. I just don't want Thank listeners <laughs> to think that. I don't <laughs> right, want listeners to think that it's yeah, un, so, unremittingly dreary. I mean, it's not uh, a comic book, but it's uh, but it's but there, fascinating. There are funny parts in it. There are some. <laughs> there are some funny bits. But uh, yeah, my 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 publicist after after like the first couple of interviews that I did for the on this book, she said, "Okay, but stop using the word hopeless. <laughs> stop using the word pessimistic. <laughs> Start talking about fascinating and, right. and enlightening." Just um, add one sentence at the end. In the end, it'll all be okay. <laughs> Right. So I don't think in the end it will all be okay. Uh, but um, after Putin is over, and you know it will be over eventually, everything ends. Um, Russia will not go- maintain its current borders. I'm pretty sure of that. It's it's an empire that is uh, experiencing more and more tension, and it's holding together as a result of sort of a combination of both fear and greed. Right. So Putin either instills fear in in the regions or buys them off. That system will break down the moment the the Kremlin is thrown into disarray, which it will be when Putin is gone in some way or another. Putin is aware of these longer-term problems? Putin is definitely aware of the challenges to Russian territorial integrity, yes. Is is his attempt, let's assume that it's his attempt personally, to interfere or weaken, sometimes in comical ways, sometimes in not, um, American unity, uh, American morale. Uh, is it of a piece with his uh, attempt to, uh, his successful attempt to occupy Crimea? In the following in the following way, I'm going to make the stronger country that's my rival weaker, and I'm going to build out the Russian Empire because I know that the Russian Empire is actually so weak. I mean, these are these the actions, in other words, of a weakling? Well, these are the actions of somebody who does feel permanently threatened. I think he feels permanently threatened personally. I think he feels permanently threatened to the extent that he doesn't actually perceive a boundary between himself and the state. He has continuously campaigned, and this is actually another uh, weird parallel between him and Trump, right? He has continuously campaigned on the threat to the country. His message has consistently been, we're on the brink of catastrophe, and I'm the only person who can hold things together. And if I step away, everything will fall apart. I think that he sincerely believes that. He believes that even more sincerely because he's been watching Putin TV for 17 years. Uh, and so, you know, he says to the television what it should say, and then it says it, and then he believes it. Um, and also not dissimilar from the media bubble that that, that Trump is intent on creating and right. has to a large extent created for Fox himself. and Friends, the RT right. of America. Fox and Friends and, you know, the Breitbart, uh, and he's, he's pretty well sort of confined to, to, to that. So I think that, yes, uh, uh, there's sort of deep moral justification that he feels for things like the annexation of Crimea and the interference in, 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 in a variety of Western elections, because all those things pose a threat to Russia. You, you've spoken a lot about Trump's use of language and misuse of language. Does Putin engage in the same practices? Making words mean the opposite of what they mean? Similar practices. So um, 
So they, uh, I mean, Putin came to power after 10 years of sort of a transitional state in Russia and 70 years of totalitarianism. Totalitarianism was marked by a kind of newspeak where words were used to mean their opposite. One of my favorite examples is what they called elections, which was the uh, voting, the free expression of citizen will. And the free expression of citizen will was actually somebody having to go to a precinct under penalty of law and having to put a check mark next to the one name on the ballot. And then Putin came and um, renewed the practice of having words mean, mean their opposite, but also introduced a new practice, which was the practice of having words mean nothing. He just keeps talking and like uh, throwing numbers out there, most of them wrong. Right, but but it it's meant to create the impression that he knows what he's talking about, but it's also just meant to drown you in like meaningless stuff. And Trump actually does both of those things. I think he's uh, he has an incredible instinct for sort of assimilating uh, words and phrases from the liberal discourse and making them mean their opposite. Right, so you know, safe space, witch hunt, uh, fake news, um, but he also just creates word salad. So he talks and you don't even know where the punctuation marks fall. And the more you try to engage with those words, the less they mean because they just, you know, you're just drowning in them. And so in that sense, yeah, they're both, they, they both do the same thing. Uh, I, I, I'm really almost obsessed with the word salad thing because they do it so differently, but the effect is so similar. I could talk to you all day, but I can't uh, because there are rules here on the podcast. There's one rule in the podcast, which is that it must end. Uh, I'm sorry for that. Her book is The Future is History. It's an excellent book. You should all go read it and, more important, buy it. Uh, and uh, Masha, thank you very much for being on The Atlantic Interview. Thank you for having me. That was Masha Gessen, winner of the National Book Award for Nonfiction, and this has been The Atlantic Interview. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Kevin Townsend and Diana Douglas with production help from Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like what you're hearing, send me a private note and be somewhat gentle if you could. You can also subscribe and share this episode with a friend. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and I'll talk with you next week.